Welcome to the latest installment of the Pharma Forum podcast. My name is Dominic Tyre, and I'm Pharma Forum's Creative and Editorial Director. In episode 37, Pharma Forum's web editor, Catherine Longworth, speaks to Gerald Finken, founder and CEO of RxE2, about pharmacy and clinical trials. As a licensed pharmacist himself with experience in biotech and pharma, Gerald sees pharmacies as an untapped resource for clinical research and believes they can be leveraged to improve recruitment and clinical trial outcomes. He also explores how COVID-19 has disrupted healthcare delivery and why virtual and decentralized trials could help increase patient access. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's edition of the Pharma Forum podcast. My name is Catherine Longworth, and I'm the web editor for Pharma Forum. And today joining me is Gerald Finken, the CEO of RxE2, which is incorporating pharmacy into the clinical research area. Gerald, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for asking me to join you today. Oh, no, I'm thrilled that you're here and very excited. Um, I think the audience is going to love hearing about your journey and about RxE2, which is doing some very exciting things. So, and if they don't, they can always just stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There you go. The so make sure you ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> so great. So before we dive in, um, tell us all about you, Gerald, and your career journey today. Tell me all about me. Yeah. My opinion or my wife's opinion? (laughs) Both. Now I'm curious. (laughs) Well, from my wife's opinion, I'll just stop talking now. Uh, (laughs) um, But I think really you want like my career, my my career path of where we are today. Absolutely. And uh, And a bit about where you're from and everything. Yeah. And I love sharing that story because um, you're only as old as you like act and feel. And sometimes I get pretty childish, but, um, but you know, I've been in the business, in the industry 40 years, in the pharmaceutical industry, clinical research for 40 years. And um, for some strange reason, I remember a lot of things <laughs> that happened 40 years ago. And, and, and in developing things or things we're doing today, and this uncanny ability, like something will pop into my head to say like, wait a minute, like, why did we get here? You know, like I know the how, everybody can follow it, but like, why did this happen? And then to go back, it's like, I was there. You know, I was there. You lived it. You lived it. I lived it. And, and so, like, we can talk about technology. Everybody talks about that. And I go back and I think about, it, like, 40 years ago, there yeah. was no technology. Yeah. Completely different we world. We were thrilled to get the fax machine. <laughs> oh, wow. We're going back now. <laughs> yeah, so we go back. And if we think about it, and so some of that is, like, my, my, my career journey is, like, good, bad, or indifferent. I remember a lot of things. And... um I think is we'll get into it. The biggest, I'm a pharmacist and um, I'm, I've been blessed by the fact that early on I wanted to be a pharmacist and I became a pharmacist and I love being a pharmacist. And then I pursued that passion through school. I was, I thought I was going to be working for a chain pharmacy because that's what I was supposed to do. But then I did a rotation in my fifth year um, in industry. And it's like, I, 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 oh my, this is where I, I have to be. And I, so I moved over into industry and then never looked back. And I was fortunate at that point to, um, changed my whole discipline about where I was focused, what I was doing, 
such that when I graduated, I had a job at ER Squibb and Sons working in their uh, uh, farm R&D. And they put me right into clinical supply manufacturing in the sterile suite. Oh, and it's wow. like way in over my head. I had, <laughs> I had 12, 12 union members who reported me who were all as old as my dad. Oh, my God. So, so can you imagine like all those like war movies where the West Point uh, lieutenant or whatever comes out, right? And he's now in charge of all their, <laughs> all their. So that was me. So, so good lesson learned at the time is I had a really good mentor and, yeah. um, and he'd like, you know, Gerald, you know, slow down, you know? And so I really was fortunate to have a good mentor when I came out and started in that area. And then just kept in the industry moving on through, through 12 years to the merger with Bristol Myers. I, I stayed in clinical supplies, got into packaging labeling, oversaw the global demand for the supplies, you know, with responsibilities in Belgium, um, up in, and, and multiple locations throughout the U.S., and so that was great learning experience for the corporate world. But then, um, as chance would have it, uh, my wife got her first job, <laughs> and it wasn't in New Jersey; it was in Moorhead, Minnesota. And, and is your uh, wife in pharmacy as well? Or? No, she's a, a she was a professor. She's, oh, okay. she's in academia, and at that time, jobs are really hard to come by. You know, the forty applications for every job, and so we had a decision to make. But at that point in, in the corporate life, I had reached about as far as I could go for what I wanted. And I was ready for a change. And so I'm a pharmacist. I still go back to practicing, you know, dispensing because during that whole time I was at Bristol Myers Squibb, I worked weekends. So I kept my hand in it because I loved the fact that on the weekends I would be dispensing like some of the drugs we got approved in the clinical trials. And so I, I got to see it through the clinical trial and then dispensed it. It was pretty cool. So anyhow, of course, then she got her job and I said, okay, Bristol Myers, thank you, but I'm leaving. And of course, came to North Dakota but after six months, realized I really missed the clinical research. And so I started consulting, uh, had an opportunity um, to start a business. Someone, had, they, someone needed work done. And I said I could do that in Fargo. And so I always use the term me and Mr. Visa joined up. And uh, I opened the doors of a company called Clinical Supplies Management, CSM. And I was very blessed during that time uh, to work with uh, great people that we start, I started like a, a receptionist to myself in 700 square feet. And to do, we grew that over 20 years to two locations, one on, one on the East Coast here in Fargo, 150 employees, you know, really a great, great uh, journey. And I can tell you right now, it was, there, there was a lot of really good people behind that made that happen. And then even then made a great choice with private equity. They came in, helped us find the right partners. And pretty much overnight, we were a global company, which was the vision I had. And it just went really well. And now that's a clinician company. So it's a publicly, it's part of a publicly traded company. Yeah. So that was a great learning uh, experience to where I am today. And of course, today, when I talk about RxE2, it is absolutely just following my passion. Mm. So like you want to, like you say, who I am, it's really, I'm a pharmacist and my passion follows that. And here I am today with RxE2. Amazing. And so what is the story with RxE2? How did the idea come about and what's the mission of the company? Well, the mission's simple. I mean, you have to know your CEO know the mission. It's, it's to incorporate the practice of pharmacy into clinical research and to then make the clinical trials a healthcare option for everyone everywhere. And so like my, my thought is, and we'll talk about the growth because it didn't just like click, you know, it was, it was um, multiple things that we're providing I've done in the past in, in, in in silos. And then I'll talk about the experience of why, how I brought it all together. But when I think about the role of the pharmacist, it doesn't exist in clinical research, but it's so desperately needed. And, um, and so the idea then is, is to take that concept and how do we, how do we um, make that happen? 
And I start thinking about all the rural community pharmacies that are everywhere. And so why not? I, I need to bring this to everyone everywhere. And that concept of everyone everywhere, I'll go to like when you say, what was the catalyst? And so two years ago, a little over two years ago, I did a medical mission to Honduras. And um, I was a dispensing pharmacist. So I, I was pretty scared because I haven't dispensed in like 20 years, right? When I started my new company at CSM and stuff, I hadn't dispensed. So I did a lot of like studying up on the drugs and, you know, that I was going to be dispensing, what did they have in inventory. And, and I'm pleased to say it's like riding a bike. Once after the first few prescriptions, everything just fell into place. And I became that dispensing pharmacist again. But while I was there, it was so moving um, to me. And I have to be careful because I tear up sometimes when I start thinking about this, that here, here we are in this Limon uh, province. And, you know, you travel back through a truck. It takes like six hours to get there from the airport and the last two hours on a dirt road getting bounced around. You come into a community and, um, and we have this little clinic. And the poverty is, it's just sad, but it's, poverty doesn't dictate happiness. You know, there, there's happy people. There's, and it doesn't dictate intelligence. It doesn't dictate needs. And, and so what I found out very quickly was, that those individuals who were coming to get prescriptions filled through this service, through this medical mission, um, absolutely knew the medications, wanted to know everything they could about their disease state. Even though they had like one phone for a group of people or one family, they used it to get information. So they were not ignorant of their disease and they were definitely not ignorant of their medication. And, and they wanted to know. They were absolutely um, asking all kinds of questions. Of course, I, an interpreter, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I only speak English, a little bit of German, but not Spanish, which I, I feel so badly about. But in nonetheless, the, you know, to be able to talk to patients, and I, that's a key for me to be able to talk to patients. And day after day, hearing what the patients had to say, to know that they're walking 10 miles to get their medication and come back the next day for their child, to say, this is commitment. And all I could think about is, like the number of medications, the hypertension medications, the di diabetes for diabetes and stuff that I was dispensing, let alone children's vitamins and stuff. I was thinking, you know, if we had a clinical trial. I could get a hundred patients signed up today. Yeah. And and what's stopping me? Yeah. Really yeah. access. And then I'm thinking of like all the things I do with clinical life. I know I could get drug there. Mm -hmm. I have access to the internet there. It's like, that, that's really take a look at this. And then as a pharmacist, I'm thinking there's so much I could do. We had a doctor, right? And so anyhow, just looked at this, said, you know, we could have, we could be really going to locations that we really don't think about and do clinical trials and, and, and even just better healthcare. You know, it just, I mean, there's a plethora of reasons why that is what it is. But in the very least, when I think about it, we could provide great healthcare to individuals through a clinical trial. And that's what brought it home to me saying, listen, these siloed things that I looked at in the past, whether it's dispensing, counseling, the recruitment, bringing it all together, saying, listen, I could do all of that in one location. And that's how RXE2 was birthed, you know, that, that full concept of um, let's, let's bring the practice of pharmacy into clinical research for everyone everywhere, especially for communities like Limon. Great. And so how do you see it impacting healthcare? So how, how do you see it fitting in to the, to the pathway? The, the practice of pharmacy. Yeah. So I like, um, I'm more of a strategist and um, I see it impacting it at the most strategic, the most important aspect, which is that strategic aspect, time, cost, and quality. The old, uh, what did they always say? You get two of the three, you know, you don't get all three. I disagree. Yeah. And so yeah. when I think about it, um, I've been in the business 40 years and, and, and I remember, you know, and I'll never forget, you know, 40 years ago when I first started to the big three issues were time, cost, quality, seven to 14 years, nine out of 10 drugs failing at back then half a billion dollars. Today, 40 years later, what's the big three? 
strategically, time, cost, quality, seven to 14 years, nine out of 10 failing, $3 billion. And, and I'm using just the relationship of half billion to 3 billion. Those numbers, of course, have really gotten um, defined, you know, to depending on what do you, what else you could do with your money, et cetera. You know, I'm using the Tufts Institute for, um, you know, for that information. So anyhow, when I look about that, and then I start taking a look about time, our pharmacists can recruit patients overnight. You know, so I don't, when we talk about recruitment, we're talking about weeks to enroll hundreds of patients versus a year, mm. getting to the 95% because we're out in those communities, getting to the people who aren't around the current academic institutions or those clinical sites. So that one of the, I see time is that one of the critical pieces, right? Plus pharmacies are, the op- pharmacists are so operationally minded. Talk about like, who do you want as an expert, a medication expert who's anal retentive about operations, right? <laughs> you know, and I talk mostly about like the, the community pharmacists, the independently owned community pharmacists that the pharmacist runs their own store. So operationally, so they're absolutely taking time out of everything. Mm. So we have time, quality. This is where one of the things I've already done. So I've had pharmacists, a group of pharmacists counseling patients in clinical trials. And what we learned from that was astounding real-time gathering information to change the way patients perceive they were supposed to take medications, how they're supposed to take medications, concomitant meds, things they're on, weren't supposed to be on, questions they had about technology, we solved real-time. And when I listened to my pharmacist counsel those patients in the trials, every day I went home just, again, like just beaming, thinking about we helped somebody again today, real-time. So the impact of that, we worked on two uh, key medications for Amlin Pharmaceuticals. They're extenotide and pramlotide. And we have, that's public knowledge. I'm not going against my uh, non-disclosure agreement, but it's public that both of those got, drugs got approved with our help first time that we were on them. And so I'm batting a hundred, a thousand, I guess in a batting average, right? I'm batting a thousand versus a hundred percent or, you know, if you're batting, you know, nine out of 10 failing. So that means now, right, I can have 18 failures and meet industry standards. Well, yeah. Right. So yeah. that's quality. Quality to me is the number one thing is what the 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 what goes on in the pharmacist's head, not with what they do with their fingers and dispensing, can make a huge difference on the quality and impact research. And then of course you do those two, cost just falls into place. But even with that, I, I take a look at the dispensing aspects with the pharmacists involved. We're going to totally revolutionize the way clinical supplies are uh, thought of, and I can drop those costs to a fraction of what they currently cost companies in total cost. And I don't mean some future cost about when the drug gets approved, you're going to save this billions of dollars because first of all, the drug isn't getting approved, mm. right? Because you're sorry, but nine out of 10 don't get approved. So that's, that's stop there, you know, but let's talk about the dollars you're spending today, right? That's the kind of, that's where I'm talking about the cost we can save today. So when I think about the impact, it's going to be on the strategic outlooks through the specific services of bringing the pharmacist into play where they have their expertise. And so, sorry for the long-winded answer to a very short question. But. No, not at all. No, no, very interesting. And COVID, as we all know, is completely shifting um, healthcare and how we approach it. And I'm curious, like, how you see healthcare changing um, post-COVID nineteen, and and particular, I guess, for pharmacists as well. There's so much hope. There's so much propaganda, <laughs> and I don't mean political. I mean, like within the industry, right? decentralized clinical trials, patient centricity, digital, the money coming in is unbelievable. Yeah. So there's a lot of hope. First, before we go, I'd like to just thank all those frontline health professionals, pharmacists in particular. Um, I'm just so proud of them, what they're doing. Um, and so the, if and, and, and when I think about COVID, it's a perfect example of the 
profession of pharmacy, the practice of pharmacy, that like, for instance, those states that are leading the way with the usage of the vaccine are led by independent community pharmacies. Oh, I North didn't know Dakota, that. South Dakota, Montana, West Virginia. Like, how did those states do it? And and most of that's because it's pharmacist led. And mm-hmm. um, and and not just because it's a pharmacist, because again, I think they're operationally anal retentive. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? But but in any case, very proud of everyone, doctors, nurses, all frontline. So I, I just um, my hats off to them. But when I think about COVID in in what you just said, put a, you know, prediction of that, I think as we all know, a digital transformation. Yeah. Right. We all talk about the siloed, and and I don't know if we're going to be able to do anything about. It. Like, we know firsthand what centralized data, and I I almost use the term socialized. It's like no, don't go with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll take um, the country of Israel. They're leading the way, and that's because they have everyone in a database or like two databases, right? And they've agreed, I believe, with Pfizer, right, that they will share that information. So collectively. All that information is a single place. So the world benefits from one like central source of information. Mm. Now we all clamor for that, right? That we know we need like, you know, one, one source of data in healthcare, but it's siloed and, and we know data is money, right? And so we're siloed. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see in a case of a pandemic, that's different than financial markets will allow, what companies will allow. And I'm hoping that just like what pharma has led by example is sharing, getting together and willing to share for really, you know, putting, and and it's a shame pharma gets a bad rap a lot of times, but they've done some unprecedented things in this time, um, you know, with COVID, such that again, so sharing. So I I think the key for me would be about um, the transformation of of the digital information. The second thing I would add to that is the regulatory aspect whether that has long-term impact because it's and, and and some of this i won't judge or that and we'll i won't judge because i don't know all the information about the in in from the fda and all the aspects about getting drugs approved but i can say like moderna they got done in nine months but they couldn't get done in nine years wow yeah. and it wasn't what was going on at moderna and so when i think about that and i had friends at sarepta for instance and the hurdle so we have our leaders that are paving the way and I know the FDA is a um, in, in the U.S. I'll just say you know is a hundred percent behind change. I mean, when you listen to uh, the leaders, you know, um, Janet Woodcock and stuff, and the, and the previous leaders of Cber and Cedar, and they're all in. But but they have the difficult decision of, of patient safety, you know, of overall safety. So anyhow, I won't judge so much on that. But I think from a regulatory view, I think we learned an awful lot too. Absolutely. And I mean, long term, I mean, where does RxE2 or where do you see healthcare in 10 to 20 years? Like, what's your vision of what maybe the next generation will be experiencing? So if I were to put on my, you know, history cap and go back 20 years, when I say clinical operations, not much has changed, Mm. right? Strategically, right? Hasn't changed in 20 years. So why do I, you know, if I'm a betting person, do I really think anything's going to change? No. Mm. Um. And some of that is because um, everybody's doing okay. You know, in the healthcare field, everybody's making a living. Yeah. And so if you get down to the root cause about what, in my belief, this is my, in my opinion, IOM, you know, if it's a hashtag, right? <laughs> no, IOM. See that? I'm, I'm not very good at this, in my opinion. I-M-O. <laughs> so, so and, and that's kind of a pessimistic view. Um, but I do, I do talk about two different things of technology. And um, 
And I absolutely agree in 10 to 20 years, real healthcare maybe it will have leapfrogged the operational side of it right. because Moore's law is absolutely taking effect in the development of drugs. And even the Genovac company where I'm, I'm in my office right now, I'm sharing an office with this company. What they're doing is unbelievable, right? To the cellular level. And we think about what CAR-T, right? When Novartis did, where it took that and the CRISPR genes and the, you know, the strides we're making, they're not going to wait for operations to catch up. It's going to just move on. So I absolutely believe like when we talk about personalized medicine and um, targeting, that's what's going to just take off. So in 10 to 20 years, that's going to be different. Operationally, I don't know how that'll, um, I want to say, I don't believe it'll, it'll keep up. I think it'll just be bypassed. The technology, the, the development technology will just bypass this operational technology. And, and if you think about it, think about seven to 14 years to get a drug approved. You have a diagnostic goes with your drug. A year after that diagnostic is partnered with that drug, that diagnostic is outdated by the next round of development. So you could have six or seven different biomarkers that constantly get updated during the approval process of a drug. So technology keeps outpacing, far outpacing our ability operational to keep up. So in 10 to 20 years, education is faced with the same thing, right? Technology is changing so fast as a freshman coming in, what they learned as a freshman is outdated by the time they graduate. Yeah. So even as a human being, we can't keep up with technology. Yeah. So I think the technology side and development is absolutely going to be spectacular in 10 to 20 years. How we use it may not change all that much. Right. And so you touched on the challenges of, of technology of, of can be outpacing um, of humans and being able to keep up. What what other challenges um, do you think there are in introducing technologies um, such as the ones RxE2 are looking at and, and across digital transformation of healthcare? Yeah, um, I think it's assumptions. We make assumptions and, and about change, right? Are we willing to change or not? And I'll go back to the operational efficiencies. Yeah. You know, um, do I want to incorporate change? You know, there's always the adage, you know, when my company CSM, we first started, like you don't get fired for using my competition. You could get fired for using me, even though we did a better job, better quality, you know? And so the fear, fear, it's just human nature. And, um, and I think, you know, as we develop technology and gather more data that I'm hopeful and, and I hope it isn't through crisis, like wait, just this past year that we learned. It'd be nice to learn through learning itself instead yeah. of through a crisis. I don't know if I quite answered that. And I don't think there is a right answer or wrong answer to that. Yeah. I guess operational efficiencies would be my, would be the key challenge. Absolutely. Great. And so as the CEO of a company, I'm curious, what do you think is good leadership? Um, and over the years and your experience, um, vast experience across working in pharmacy, corporate world, um, or what's your philosophy, I guess? How do you approach it? <laughs> leadership. I guess it comes to which perspective are you looking at? You know, we have political leadership, which right now we know is polarized half the country for one, half a country for another. It's like, is that, is that leadership? Yes, it's leadership. Um, we have leadership in sport. Everybody knows leadership in sports, right? Who's the captain of the team, right? And then we have what I consider like what in our industry, we focus more on the financial leadership. Who's mm. successful based upon the financial, you know, of, of success of companies, um, and then there's hundreds of books out there about leadership and what makes you know good to great and you know that, yeah. that type of, um, and so I, I read a lot of that and I look a lot about that leadership and and um, so to me like kind of it just is or it isn't, um, and 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 I guess like for me, 
whether I'm a good leader or not is not for me to say, right? It's for those who work with me, right? Yeah. They're the ones, right? It's kind of like integrity. I can't tell you I have integrity. You have to tell me I have integrity, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, I'm, I have integrity. It's just like you walk out of the room. It's like, he just screwed me over. It's like, that's, there's no integrity. <laughs> so the same thing with leadership. I could tell you I have leadership, but if you won't follow me, then what does it matter? And I think I think that comes down to this very, for me, for in my life about leadership, comes down to a very simple thing. And I've seen, and it's not mine, I, I, or I read it, or it could have been a good movie or something like that, is that I'm willing to do anything I ask someone else to do, mm. right? So I'm not asking someone to do something I wouldn't do. And so, like, I'm not afraid to roll up my sleeves and get my, my hands dirty. So I'm like my wife and I, and maybe that's why we've been married over 40 years now, is that, like, both of us just say, you know, if things really go south, we'll just work. You know, we'll dig ditches or work at Burger. Well, if McDonald's is still there, it's like we'll work. We're not afraid to work. No. And um, and it's like willing to do whatever it takes to get it done. And um, boy, can I? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna switch on that very topic. Let me just think about this. You know what's really good leadership? Watership Down. It's a children's book. Oh yeah, I've heard of it. Watership Down, rabbits. Yeah. And now you just like I'm getting I get goosebumps even thinking about this. There, there was the head rabbit. Hazelroth, right? Yeah. Who you follow the story of Hazelroth through the book, and he befriends this the the big rabbit, right? The uh, big rabbit, uh, bigwig. Yeah. His name. His name. <laughs> children's books, right? And I tell you, it's, it's it's funny because um first time I first time I heard the book, my wife is reading it to us a story time when my boys were eleven and five. So the first time oh. I heard Worship Down, I'm sitting on the floor with them listening, like, Mom, read another chapter, you know. <laughs> but it but it was it just so moving that throughout this. There are times where this not like evil rabbit comes in night. They think it's El Arari or something like come, coming to get them. And they're all scared. And Hezrah says, bigwig, stay here. It's like, stay here. It's like going out to see, to meet death. Uh -huh. Right. And it turns out to be a rabbit that was sick. You know, so it's like Hezrah was not afraid. So you just say like, you're the big guy. You go out there. No. But what really gets me is in the end, in the culmination, the very end of the story, um, and won't go through the details, but there comes this other, other big rabbit called Woundwort, I think it is, something like that. Again, these names. Anyhow, he gets in a fight with Big Big, and they're going back and forth, and it's a draw. And so the the one, the, this other rabbit that comes in to take over the warren says to his other rabbit, like, finish this. And like, and he goes to Big Big, like, why, why are you doing this? Just let's, let's give up, you know, give up and, um, and join us. And he says to him, I can't because my lead rabbit told me to stay. Oh. And so all the other rabbits only know this dictator type big bully as leadership. So they're thinking if this rabbit, right, is fighting to his death to protect his warren, yeah. there must be a rabbit that's 10 times bigger than him. Yeah. Right? And it turns out that Hazel is just, just a meek. He went to seek peace with them. Again, as peacemaker, he went to seek peace with them before the battle. So, so watership down, Hazeroth is, oh, is to be the quintessential leader that you want to be. Oh, I love that. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah thank you. It gives me goosebumps even just oh. thinking about it. I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't leave here because my lead rabbit. Oh. Me to go. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And in your career and now starting a company, um, trying something new and different, what are some lessons you've learned over the years? And is there anything you'd like to share or that you'd like to sort of reflect on? Um, <laughs> <laughs> all thousand of them uh, <laughs> and and uh, lessons I shouldn't have had to learn. 
(laughs) (laughs) There again, words of wisdom. You know, there are so many great people, so many great books. You know, through all that, it's like, you know, I'll I'll, I'll offer my opinion for sure. And um, but I read, you know, follow everybody you can. And all of that is always take away what's personal. And so lessons I've learned. I'd take the top of my head. I had a board member, great mentor of mine. He, like he took me aside once said, you know, Gerald, just make more right decisions than wrong decisions. <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking like, thanks, because I wasn't making too many good decisions. <laughs> so in other words, like, okay, three bad, start making some good ones. You know, it's like, thanks. I could think about my father-in-law when I asked my wife to marry him, because I was like, 18 and she was like 17 and um and he said to me just don't do anything stupid (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) lesson learned right um no in all seriousness um lessons learned there are things there's things like that i've i've held near and dear um because like i think about like people have told me like i don't burn bridges and um no matter how bad what it was don't burn bridges because it's a small world and, and like in the pharmacy, like you never know who's going to be your boss, who you need to work with again. And um, and part of that's all like, again, personal forgiveness. And, you know, and and I guess that goes hand in hand, probably even more than that is is um, I actually responded through a LinkedIn just yesterday about don't judge. Mm. Don't judge in the moment. Yeah. And one of the things I've learned and, and as a life experience of mine, I, I I really value this again, as I've been in industry so long or, and, you know, in companies and learning so long is that. When I, when I when something happens, we have our immediate response or reaction, and we have a judgment we make. Mm. But what I've realized, in, in, in especially being in healthcare where we are, is that stop, have an opinion, have a thought, but don't necessarily react. Wait, yeah. because the more you learn about it, right, you realize that wait a minute, there's more information I didn't have at my fingertips, mm. and so sometimes. It's a day. Sometimes it's two. Like we often know how many people always say, delete the email that you were going to send in in the immediate response. Wait until tomorrow. Right. So sometimes you need to wait a few years. And in a few years, all of a sudden light is shed on on a situation and it's better. In my case, I remember one critical thing to happen in my life. It was 10 years until I recognized the value that what I thought was important at the time absolutely was not important. Wow. And um, and so I guess. You know, not to judge, not to be, not to judge too quickly. Other lessons learned, uh, work hard, don't give up. And, and that goes with my whole thing about having, having faith and, and passion with what you do. Absolutely follow your passion. I was just talking to a gentleman yesterday doing super well. And COVID is actually reevaluating a lot of people, right? Are learning what's important to them. And yeah. families like, wait a minute, what am I doing? So make sure you follow your passion and know what that passion is, which may not be what you're doing today. I, I'm blessed in the fact that I love the practice for me. I love what I do. This is not work. Yeah. <laughs> even though at times it feels like it. Yeah. But I mean, I wake up in the morning sometimes and I think about this, even just talking to you now just reinvigorates me to say, go do this. Yeah. Go do this. Absolutely. Oh, thank you so much, Gerald. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Anything else you'd like to highlight? About. Uh, how long do you want the podcast to go on for? <laughs> <laughs> I, could, no. I love to talk, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, what would I like to share? Are your plans for the rest of the year or any key milestones that you're working towards um, for the future with RxE2 and personal goals? Yeah, yeah, I will. 
and it's from lessons learned. Um, when I was at CSM, I created this concept called on demand, and it was it really a gr much greater flexibility, eliminated the waste in the warehouse. You know, it was a, a, a great concept, but it was change. It was big time change. Mm -hmm. And it took almost 15 years, right? 10 years for sure. But now everybody's using it. And like there's articles on it all the time. Wow. Like just in time, demand led, on demand. So it took a long time. So the takeaway right now is like pharmacist clinical trials, right? Pharmacist led clinical trials is coming. I know it. I see it. My the vision is very clear to me, you know, and the feedback, everything, it's happening. So it's like the difference that's going to be, it's not going to take me 10 years. The lessons learned from my on demand and in the past, pharmacists are coming to clinical research. And I would, I would say all, everybody who's listening, get involved. Your pharmacist, get involved because it's so desperately needed, especially what's going on technology. We need that medication expert, that other healthcare professional expert in clinical research. So. Watch, here it comes. You know, here comes the tra train down the track called pharmacist-led trials. Get yeah. on board. Get on board. <laughs> and, and what's the feedback been like when you're talking about this with other pharmacists and the community? Everyone's excited. What are they saying? Oh, it's um, aha moments. Mm. You're like, oh my God, why didn't I think about this? Oh, it's so simple. <laughs> it really is a very simple concept. Not so easy to pull off, though. Some of the easiest things are not so easy to pull off, like Uber, right? Simple concept. Yeah. Like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> it's not easy to pull off. So anyhow, that's from pharmacists. Um, the, the community pharmacists that we're bringing on board right now and working with, they absolutely believe in this. They know this is, a, they have the ability to do this. And, and most of it, what I'm asking them to do is nothing they're not already doing. That's the crazy part of this. Clinical research sits in one bubble. Marketing and, and the, the commercial sits in another. And they don't talk. Yeah. And yet, like when you think about commercial, who's the first person they go to when the drug's approved? The pharmacist. Yeah. In the database. It's like, yeah, there's no pharmacist involved in clinical research. So there's going to be aha moments and, it, and it's just going to tumble. And it's going to be best. You know who benefits the most from this? Yeah. The patient. Yeah. You and I. Yeah. You and I. Because we're all going to be patients one day. Yeah. Thank God. I'll knock on my desk here. Thank God I'm not a patient yet. You know? Yeah. But, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, that's very exciting. And we'll be following the journey, Gerald, and looking forward to hearing more news and catching up with you, hopefully, in future to, yeah. to see Thanks how so it's fun. Thanks so much for having fun with me today. No, <laughs> thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. And very asking those tough questions. Yeah, <laughs> no, of course. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And that concludes episode 37 of the Pharma Forum podcast and Catherine Longworth's discussion with Gerald Finken from RxE2 about pharmacy and clinical research. You can find more details of this episode, including a download link for the podcast and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean where you can find and subscribe to it by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website to sign up for daily or weekly email, pharmaceutical news and analysis bulletins, and follow us on Twitter, where we are at Pharma Forum. Mm -hmm.